If you will, open your Bible again to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. This is our third stop in Thessalonica. A week ago on Sunday, we looked at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2 to 10. And we talked about how Paul prayed for his friends in Thessalonica. We talked about how we might pray for our church. And we talked about in listening to this prayer, this inspired by the Holy Spirit prayer, that we might learn what it is God wants from His church. So that was a week ago, uh, 1 Thessalonians. Wednesday night, if you were here, our adults and our college and our youth talked about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And we talked about the idea of sanctification, specifically as our sanctification connects with sexuality as men and as women. And this morning we're going to look at 2 Thessalonians 2, and we're finally coming here in stop number 3, we're coming to what is probably the distinctive theological emphasis of the books of 1 and 2 Thessalonians. And that is, this morning we're talking about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming of Jesus for His people. Sometimes Bible scholars refer to this as the parousia, uh, the second coming. Sometimes they lump this topic under the broad heading of eschatology. That word simply means the study of last things, the study of the end. But we're talking this morning about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I don't want to assume that you were here last week or here Wednesday, and so I want to make sure you understand the history between Paul and the church in Thessalonica. So we'll start with this. Thessalonica was Paul's first stop after leaving Philippi, and you can go back and read the references that I've given you. Paul was on his second missionary journey. He had split ways with Barnabas, his partner in the first missionary journey, and he's traveling with Silas and Timothy. Their first stop, they thought, would be Asia. They wanted to go to the Roman province of Asia and preach the gospel and strengthen the churches, and the Holy Spirit did not let them go there. We're not given a lot of detail about how that was not allowed to happen, but it was not allowed to happen. And instead, God redirected them to Macedonia, and their first stop in Macedonia was Philippi, and they met Lydia, and they met the slave girl, and they met the jailer, and everything blew up in Philippi. And Paul had to move on down the road. And his next stop after leaving Philippi was Thessalonica. We know from the book of Acts that Paul stayed in Thessalonica at least three Sabbaths. The book of Acts says he reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue on three consecutive Sabbaths. So he's there only for a couple of weeks. We also know from the book of Acts that in those couple of weeks, many people put their faith in the Lord Jesus. That was different than Philippi. Only a few people had put their faith in the Lord Jesus in Philippi. But in Thessalonica, many of the Jews put their faith in Jesus. Many of the Greeks who had never been circumcised put their faith in the Lord Jesus. There was a large ingathering of new Christians in this church. We also know that Paul didn't get to stay long. He moved on down the road, he went to Berea, he went to Athens, he went to Corinth, and at some point, as he's traveling with Silas and Timothy, Paul says to Timothy, I'm worried about the church in Thessalonica, I want you to go back and check on them. So Timothy goes back and he checks on the church, and they're doing great. And he comes back to Paul and he says, Paul, there's suffering 
It's hard to be a Christian in Thessalonica, but they're doing really, really well. Except there is one issue that you need to know about, Paul. They're really confused about the second coming of Jesus. And they're really anxious about the second coming of Jesus. And they think that they've maybe missed it. They think that they're going to not be included. There's all sorts of people saying that you said this and you said that. And it's, it's just kind of a mess. And so when you write to these people, you probably ought to try to set them straight and give them some explanation on the second coming of Jesus. So we'll talk about how Paul does that this morning. Here's the big idea of our passage. Second Thessalonians 2, 1 to 12, Jesus will come back. He will come back, and He will come back as a faithful shepherd, a conquering king, and a righteous judge. A faithful shepherd, a conquering king, and a righteous judge. 1995, I was just about to start high school, and two men wrote a book. Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins wrote a book titled Left Behind. And the picture of that book up on the screen is really small. You probably can't read the subtitle that's right in between the word left and behind. So let me read the subtitle to you. A novel. A novel. Everybody hear that? A novel of the earth's last days. Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins. These guys are amazing writers, both of them. They are absolutely prolific in the amount of work that they have written in their careers. Tim LaHaye ended up writing some 80-plus books. Jerry B. Jenkins ended up writing over 130 different books. If you're not a math major, I'll crunch the numbers and tell you that between them, that's more than 200 books. That's a lot of books. If you're not an English major, I'll just tell you, that's a lot of words to fill a lot of books. It's an amazing amount of literary output from two men. But neither of these men is really famous for all of these dozens and dozens and literally hundreds of books, what they are famous for is the Left Behind book they wrote in 1995 and the series that followed. A number of these books, almost all of them as the series went on, reached New York Times bestseller status. At least three of them debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And depending on who you read or what source you look at today in 2022, the numbers suggest that they have sold in total between 80 million and 100 million copies of these books. Now, I don't know if you know anything about selling books. That's an incredible number of books for any kind of book. It's absolutely mind-blowing for a book that falls in the subcategory or subgenre of Christian or Christian fiction. It's an astronomical number, a hundred million books. I promise you this, you haven't been to a garage sale, a yard sale, or an estate sale in the last 15 years that didn't have that right there on the shelf somewhere. These books are literally everywhere. In the books... The theology that forms the foundation for the Left Behind series is what theologians call dispensationalism. 
If you want to understand dispensationalism, you can go back and you can think about two key figures. The guy on the left is John Nelson Darby. He was born in 1800 and he died in 1882. John Nelson Darby was the first one that promoted this system of thinking that we call today dispensationalism. The guy on the right is a guy named Cyrus Schofield. In 1909, Cyrus Schofield took a bunch of notes that were based on the theology of John Nelson Darby. He put them in the footnotes of a King James Bible and published it as the Schofield Reference Bible. A lot of you probably own a Schofield Reference Bible. If you go to Bible stores today, they're still for sale, and they're very common, and they're very popular. This Bible promoted the ideas of John Nelson Darby, and there were other people who played an important role along the way, but if you fast forward to the mid-90s and the 2000s, you end up with Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins writing this massive series of books the Left Behind series, and the theological foundation is what we would call dispensationalism. It's the ideas of John Nelson Darby and the ideas of Cyrus Schofield. The distinctive element to what you find in the Left Behind books is the idea that in the end, Jesus will come back secretly, quietly, silently, no one will notice, and He will snatch or he will gather, or he will rapture his church out of the world. He will come back and all of these people will just basically disappear. They will be raptured out. And then a period of seven years of what you could call hell on earth will unfold in a period known as the Great Tribulation. And then at the end of those seven years, the Lord Jesus Christ will return. He will destroy the Antichrist, and He will establish His earthly millennial kingdom on the earth. That's the basic idea set forth in dispensational theology as it relates to end-time events. It's what Darby taught, it's what Schofield taught, and it's what the Left Behind books taught. It's not, in the interest of full disclosure, what your pastor believes. Now, I look back at Darby and Schofield and even Jerry B. Jenkins and Tim LaHaye. We agree on the vast majority of what the Bible says. We agree about what the Bible says about who God is, and we agree what the Bible says about human sin, and we agree what the Bible says about Jesus and His life and His death and His resurrection, and that salvation is by faith in the Lord Jesus only, not by works. We agree on all of these things. We disagree. I disagree with this position when it comes to end times teaching and this idea that the church will just be sort of snatched out before things get really bad, and that this snatching out, this rapture of the church will happen in a secret, quiet coming of the Lord Jesus. Now, I do want to say this. I've been here for about eight years. This is nothing that I've recently changed my mind on. And for the last eight years, as I have taught new member classes, new groups of people coming to our church, we lay out for them in that class, that plugged-in class, what we believe. This is what we believe about the Bible. This is what we believe about God. This is what we believe about men and women as created in God's image and what marriage is. And this is what we believe about sin. And this is how we believe salvation has unfolded in history and how it can unfold in your life. And this is what we believe about what a church is. And we lay all of those things out, distinctive things that we believe as convictional Baptists. And then at the end of that class, I say, we believe 
as a church that the Lord Jesus Christ will come back for His people. That's the measuring line for involvement in this church, for serving in this church, for leading in this church, for being a member of this church. I tease you all the time that I'm going to kick you out and we're going to send you across the street to the Methodists. On this issue, nobody has to become a Methodist. You can all stay right here at Emmanuel. It's not something we have to divide over. It's not something we have to fight over. But it is something that we should constantly be going back to the Scriptures to say, what does the Bible actually say about these things? I know what Darby says. I know what Schofield and his notes say. I know what this guy on the internet says, and I know what that preacher told me growing up, and I hear what Landon is saying to me. But all of that stuff aside, what does the Bible say about the second coming of Jesus? There may be no better place to look than 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. This church was confused about the second coming of Jesus, and Paul was trying to get them sorted out. And maybe he can get us sorted out this morning as well. So here's what I aim to do. I aim to start off acknowledging that there are some things in this passage that are debated, argued about. You and I may not all agree on the same page. You and family members may not all agree on the same page. There's debated parts of this passage. There's also really clear truth in this passage. There's truth that is so clear you can't deny it, you can't argue with it without being done with the Bible itself. So we're going to talk about honestly the debated parts of this passage, then we'll land on the clear truth and we'll think about how we ought to respond. So debatable issues in 2 Thessalonians 2. Number one, what is it that people were actually saying about the second coming of Jesus in Thessalonica? If they were so confused, what is it that people were saying that was wrong? And the short answer is, we don't know. We don't know. We weren't there. We didn't hear it. But when you look at Paul's letters, you can have a few clues, and you can have some educated guesses as to what was being taught there. For example, if you've just read through the book of 1 Thessalonians as we're reading through the New Testament, maybe you noticed that every chapter in 1 Thessalonians, all five chapters, end with a reference to the second coming of Jesus. Every chapter. Now, some of you are looking at me rolling your eyes saying, Pastor, don't you know Paul didn't write in chapter and verse? Yes, I know. Paul did not write in chapter and verse. That came much, much later. Paul didn't intend for that to happen. What Paul intended to do is to talk about the second coming of Jesus all the way through the letter. All the way through the letter. He kept coming back to that idea. It's the theme of that book and of this book, 2 Thessalonians. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. There's concern in this passage that if somebody has fallen asleep, verse 13, that is they've died, somebody has died before Jesus came back, maybe they're going to miss out on all the stuff at the end. Sorry, wish you could have lived 2,000 years longer, 2,500 years longer. You missed it. You just didn't live long enough. Or if the Lord comes back in our lifetimes, maybe say, sorry, if you'd have lived five more minutes. But you missed it. And Paul says, I want you to understand. Look what he says in verse 15. 
we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we are not going to precede those who have fallen asleep. The Lord Jesus is going to raise his people from the dead, and no one is going to miss out on the second coming of Jesus. All of God's people, dead and alive, will be raised to new life, and they will be there to witness the second coming of Jesus. No one misses it. No one misses out. He talks about in chapter 5 that that day may come like a thief, but that these people should not be surprised. They should expect the coming of the Lord Jesus. If your Bible's open, look at what he says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 5. He talks about the righteous judgment of God. And he goes on to tell the church, when the Lord Jesus comes, he will come in vengeance. And he will bring judgment on those who are afflicting you. So maybe there was some idea in Thessalonica that all of this persecution that they were suffering simply for following Jesus, maybe these bad people afflicting them were just going to get away with it. Like, is anybody going to do anything about all of these terrible things they're doing to the Christians in Thessalonica? And Paul says, you bet. The Lord Jesus will come back and He will come in vengeance, in judgment to repay those who afflict you. Look what he says in our passage. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1, he says, we're talking about the coming of the Lord Jesus and our being gathered to Him. Verse 2, don't be quickly shaken. Don't be alarmed in your mind about a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Apparently, there were some people saying, hey, I talked to Paul and Paul said Jesus already came back. Everyone missed it. We're all still here. We just missed the train. What in the world? And people were worried about this. They didn't want to miss it. And Paul says, don't be alarmed. Nobody's missed it. Nobody's missed anything. In all of these things, Paul is trying to set this church straight about the issues that they were confused over regarding Jesus' return. Here's another debatable issue. Who is the man of lawlessness? Who is the man of lawlessness? He's only mentioned by this name here in 2 Thessalonians. If your Bible's open, I'd just like to point out some obvious things that Paul says about him. Verse 3, he says that the man of lawlessness will be revealed and that he is a son of destruction. That might refer to the destruction he tries to inflict on others, but most likely it refers to the destruction that he is destined for. He is doomed. He is destined to be destroyed. The son of destruction. Look what he says in verse 4. He says that he opposes God, every so-called God, and he sets himself up as God as someone to be worshipped. Look at verse 6. This is important. Paul says, This man of lawlessness is currently being restrained. He is not omnipotent. He is not all-powerful. There is someone, there is something restraining him. He's on a leash. He has boundaries. Limits have been set. He's not all-powerful. Look at verse 7. He is powerful. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Even as he's restrained, he's currently at work 
in this world. Verse 8, we'll come back to this. Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth in the appearance of his coming. The final battle will not be much of a battle at all. The Lord Jesus will show up. He will utter a word. And this man will be destroyed. Look at verse 9. His coming is connected to the work of Satan. The influence of Satan. That tells us that he's not Satan, but he's maybe inspired by or empowered by in some sense, Satan. Presumably, this is the person Jesus talks about in Matthew 24 when he talks about the abomination that causes desolation. I think you can connect those passages. Presumably, this is the one that John talks about in 1 John and 2 John when he uses the name Antichrist. That name Antichrist only shows up in 1 John and 2 John. And to be fair to John, he talks as much about Antichrists, little a, Antichrists, as he does the big A, Antichrist. But presumably, there's a connection there between the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist. Presumably, you can draw a line to Revelation 13. You read about the beast and the dragon and the havoc that they wreak on the people of God and on the world. Paul seems to be describing an end times figure. Some things may not be clear, but it's an end times figure who hates God, opposes God, hates God's people, opposes His people, and who ultimately will be destroyed by the coming of the Lord Jesus. Next, debatable things. Who or what is restraining the man of lawlessness. You want to go down an internet rabbit hole? Google that question. You can find all sorts of answers to that question. I'll just point out to you that in verse 6, Paul says the man of lawlessness is being restrained by a what. You know what restrains him. And in the very next verse, verse 7, Paul says he is being restrained by a who. You know who restrains him. Is it a who or is it a what? Is it an impersonal thing or is it a personal person? I think the best answer, the most obvious answer is to say that God is the one restraining him and it is the sovereignty of God, the power of God that sets the limits on this man of lawlessness. We'll move on from that question. Question number four, this is a big one. What is Paul referring to when he mentions the temple? He uses the word temple in verse 4. He says, This man of lawlessness will exalt himself, and he will take his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. What does he mean by the temple? Well, for the people in Thessalonica, the most obvious reference would have been the temple in Jerusalem, brick-and-mortar temple, that when Paul wrote this letter was still standing in Jerusalem. And so we'll put a picture of it up on the screen. This isn't the temple itself, it's a scale model, a reproduction of the temple that stood in Jerusalem. This is the temple that was built by Zerubbabel when the exiles came back from the Babylonian exile. This is the temple that Herod the Great enlarged and expanded and beautified in amazing ways shortly before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And this is the temple that in A.D. 70 was flattened to the ground when Titus marched the legions of Rome into Jerusalem and destroyed the city. That temple has never been rebuilt. In fact, if you were to go to this site, 
Today, in Jerusalem, this is what you would see. You would see two Muslim shrines, one called the Dome of the Rock, connected to Muhammad and some miracles that happened with Muhammad, and the other a mosque called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And Muslims view this as a holy place. It's the very temple mount where the temple stood. So this is a bit of an issue when you're sorting through 2 Thessalonians and Paul says that the man of lawlessness is going to set himself up in this temple. We read that today and we say, okay, these things haven't happened yet. Lord Jesus has not come back yet. If that's going to happen today, this real estate is going to have to be vacated, which seems like a pretty big deal if you know anything about Jerusalem and Middle Eastern politics. And a new temple is going to have to be built on this site. That's the only place the Jews would ever build a temple. So is he talking about a brick-and-mortar temple that needs to be rebuilt in Jerusalem? Or is he using the word temple here the way that he uses it in 1 Corinthians and Ephesians when he says to the church, you are God's temple? You are God's temple. God's Spirit lives in you. His glory does not reside in a brick-and-mortar building like it did in the Old Covenant, in the tabernacle, and then in Solomon's temple. But the Spirit of God lives in you, and He's building you to be this temple. Again, this is hotly debated, incredibly debated. What does Paul mean when he talks about this temple? Let's pivot from some debated things to some clear things. And let's talk about clear truth, things that you cannot deny or argue with in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. The first is this, the day of the Lord is coming. Mark it down. The day of the Lord is coming. It may be slow in coming as some reckon time. Paul may or may not have thought that there would be 2,000 years of church history between his writing and here we are today waiting on the day of the Lord, but the day of the Lord will come. The day of the Lord will come. The Lord Jesus will return. There will be a day of judgment. Jesus will be recognized as the King, and as the King, He will judge the living and the dead. You understand that every worldview on the earth, every religion on the earth has to give an answer to this question. And the question is, how will it all end? Where are we going? What is happening here and what's the terminus? Every faith, every worldview has to answer that question. Do you know what your Hindu friends would say? If you have a Hindu friend, your Hindu friend would say to you, it all ends with one more reincarnation. We just go round and round and round. History is not linear, it's cyclical, and we're just going to keep going round and round and round. Where it stops, nobody knows because it doesn't stop. It just goes round and round. You know what your Buddhist friends would tell you? Your Buddhist friends would tell you it ends when everyone reaches a state of nirvana and all life as we know it is snuffed out like you would snuff out a candle. And everything becomes nothing. That's how it ends. Do you know what a Muslim would tell you? Muslim would tell you that in the end there will be a day of judgment. Allah will judge all people based on your works. 
And your entrance into paradise will be conditioned on whether or not you earned it or you didn't. You know what a scientist, an atheistic, naturalistic scientist would tell you? They don't believe in God. They don't believe in a creation. Most of them would probably say we're headed towards some sort of climate crisis where life on earth will be unsustainable in the near future. And in the long range, we all know our star is going to run out of gas and it's going to quit burning and then life on earth as we know it comes to an end. Just ends. And that's it. The Bible has a different answer. And the answer of the Bible is that we are moving closer every day to the day of the Lord. And if you read First and Second Thessalonians, the Bible says that the day of the Lord will be like this. The Lord Jesus will come. The archangel, 1 Thessalonians 4, will scream. There will be the blast of the trumpet of the Lord. The dead in Christ will be raised. And they'll be united with those who are alive at the coming of the Lord. And in the end, this man of lawlessness will be destroyed and defeated by the Lord Jesus Christ. Look with me in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. He says, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to Him. I just want you to see that from my perspective when I read this chapter, it seems very clear to me that Paul couples those two things as one event. That Jesus will come and we will be gathered to Him in the same event. And he goes on in verse 3 and he says, Don't let anyone deceive you in any way. That day, not those days, that day when the Lord Jesus comes back and we are gathered to Him, when He comes back with the archangel and the trumpet and the dead in Christ rising, all of these loud, visible, public things, and our being gathered to Him. He says that is on one day. Look at verse 3. That day will not come until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Jesus will not come and He will not gather His people until this lawless one has come and been revealed. That's pretty clear in verse 3. Verse 8, the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of His mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of His coming. I've told you before that when I was in high school, my dad let me buy one boxing pay-per-view. Mike Tyson versus Hurricane Peter McNeely. And I was so excited to watch Mike Tyson fight. I was so excited. Did any of you watch this fight? It lasted about eight seconds. They rang the bell. They took three steps. Tyson hit him once. He went down. And as a high school kid, I said, I paid 60 bucks for that? That's it? What a disappointment. If you think that's a fast fight, how about this fight? The Lord Jesus just shows up. He just comes. And He utters a word. And this man of lawlessness is killed. He's destroyed. It's not much of a fight. But it's certainly not in question. You don't need to call Vegas for the betting odds. 
The day of the Lord will come. The Lord Jesus will return. He will gather His people to Himself. When He says that in verse 1, that the Lord Jesus will gather us together to Him, that's the language of a shepherd gathering His sheep. That's Jesus in John 10 saying, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. No one takes it from me. I have authority to lay it down and to take it back up. I know my sheep, Jesus said. I know all of them. I know their names. And none of them will be missing. Jesus says in John 10, I know the sheep and the sheep know me. And my Father holds His sheep in His hand. And no one can snatch them from the Father. When he says that the Lord Jesus is coming and he is going to gather his people together, you are to understand that when the Lord Jesus comes, he will be the good shepherd who gathers his people and no one of his people will be missing. He knows all of his sheep by name and he will gather them. And he has come to be the king of all kings, including this man of lawlessness, and he will destroy him with the breath of his mouth, with a single word. If you come on Wednesday nights and sing hymns with us in this room, occasionally we sing a 500-year-old hymn written by a man named Martin Luther, and the hymn is called, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The third verse says this, though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, and lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. One word. He's coming back as the shepherd to gather his people. He's coming back as the conquering king to defeat his enemies. And he's coming back as a righteous judge. That brings us to the last truth on your notes. The sovereignty of God and the activity of Satan do not negate human responsibility. This is verse 9, 10, 11, 12. It's the end of this passage that we've read. And there's some thorny stuff in here. There's some stuff that you really got to use some mental energy to try to sort together and fit together. If your Bible's open, look at verse 9 and verse 10. It says, Satan will be at work in these days. And you remember he said up above, even now the mystery of lawlessness is at work. It's not just an end times thing, but Satan will be at work with power and false signs and false wonders and wicked deception. You understand, Satan's been doing that since the beginning. He is the deceiver. He's the liar. He wants to deceive you. He wants to lie to you. Did God really did God really say? That's an old tactic. Look at verse 10. Paul says, People will stand condemned because the devil tricked them. Not what he says, is it? They will stand condemned because they refused. To love the truth and so be saved. Were they deceived? Some of them were, are, will be. But it's their 
heart that refuses to love the truth and be saved. Look what he says in verse 11 and 12. God has a role to play in this. God is not passively standing by. Verse 11 and 12, God sends a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Verse 12, are they condemned because God sent them a delusion? No. God does send a delusion, but they're condemned because they actually took great pleasure in their unrighteousness. What I'm saying to you is that all of these things are true in verse 9, 10, 11, 12. And these are hard things to wrap our minds around, our spiritual arms around, but this is what the text is saying. Satan is the deceiver. He deceives. And God is sovereign over all of it to the extent that He said to send a strong delusion. And even though those things are true, it's people who refuse to believe the truth and so be saved. It's people who take great pleasure in the works of unrighteousness. And it's people who will be held responsible for their sin on the day of the Lord. Our hope in life and death is not that maybe we can be good enough in the end. Jesus won't see our sin as all that bad and He'll just sort of give us a wink and a pass. Our hope is that the good shepherd has already come, and the first time that he came, he laid down his life for the sheep. He died for us. The shepherd died for the sheep. And when he comes back, he's coming to gather his sheep. When he comes back, he's coming as the conquering king who will defeat all evil and all opposition. Satan the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist, all opposition will be defeated. And there will be a day of judgment. And you will be responsible for your sin. And the only hope that you might have on that day is that you have already put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who is the good shepherd who laid down his life for yours. This morning, if you have never done that, if you have never repented of your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I would plead with you and those of us who know the Lord Jesus as the good shepherd, we would plead with you to follow the example of the Thessalonians. Here's what the Thessalonians did. Paul rolled into town. Paul started preaching about Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven, the one that He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. When He comes, everyone will acknowledge Him as the King, and everyone will stand before Him as the judge. The question is, do you know Him today as the shepherd? The one who laid down his life and the one who was raised to life by the Father. Let's pray together.